National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns, is brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check out their website at cybersecuritysummit.org for a list of their upcoming webinar series. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, September 27th, and you've joined us for National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. We get together here on KYMN Radio every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security, and we're joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore American national security challenges and opportunities. We're going to return to the topic of climate change and national security today. July was the hottest month on record globally, and we've seen droughts around the world, including three years of drought here in Minnesota, not to mention many other places around the globe. Massive wildfires driven by a lack of moisture, and case in point would be the Canadian wildfires that have been burning all summer long. Uh, the fire that engulfed Lahaina on Maui in, uh, in Hawaii. The fires all across Europe and many other examples of how climate change is already impacting our world. We also know that the oceans are heating right at a time when we need the oceans to sequester more carbon dioxide and the plant life in the oceans to produce oxygen for our atmosphere. Scientists estimate some 50% of the oxygen we breathe actually comes from a healthy ocean where marine plants turn carbon dioxide in the water into the oxygen that goes into the atmosphere. The nexus of climate change and national security is a vitally important topic, and with us to discuss this topic today is Aaron Sikorsky. Aaron Sikorsky is director of the Center for Climate and Security and also the International Military Council on Climate and Security. She's an expert in geopolitical risk, strategic forecasting, and the national security implications of climate change, particularly the nexus of geopolitical competition and climate change. Previously, Aaron served as deputy director of the Strategic Futures Group on the National Intelligence Council here in the United States, where she co-authored the Quadrennial Global Trends Report and led the U.S. intelligence community's environmental and climate security analysis. She was the founding chair of the Climate Security Advisory Council, a congressionally mandated group designed to facilitate coordination between the intelligence community and U.S. government scientific agencies. Prior to her position on the National Intelligence Council, she worked as a senior analyst in the U.S. intelligence community for over a decade, leading teams examining conflict and instability risks in Africa and the Middle East. For this work, she won the National Intelligence Analysis Award. Ms. Sikorsky is an adjunct professor at George Mason University, where she designed and teaches a course on climate change and national security. She's also a contributing editor at Lawfare, a consultant for the Defense Science Board, a member of the Climate Migration Council, a life member of the Council on Foreign Relations, and she serves on the advisory board of the Smith, of the Smith College Center for Environment, Ecological Design, and Sustainability. She's regularly featured in television interviews on CNN, the BBC, and the Weather Channel, as well as public radio shows and podcasts such as The World, Here and Now, Chatter, and America Adapts. She has published many articles in a wide range of outlets. Ms. Sikorsky earned a Master of International Affairs at Columbia University and before that a Bachelor of Arts in Government from Smith College. Aaron Sikorsky, welcome to National Security This Week. Thanks so much, John. It's a pleasure to be here. It is. Uh, it, this is going to be. This is. A, this is a great show. I, I am. I've been really looking forward to this. The Center for Climate and Security does some great work. I've researched your your website many di different times to t to learn about this topic. So, what can you tell us about the Center for Climate and Security? What What is that organization, and is it part of a larger entity that looks at risk more broadly? 
Sure. Yeah. Happy to talk about the the center, or as we call it, CCS. Sometimes we're in Washington, so everything needs an acronym, right? Uh, so we're a, we're a nonpartisan nonprofit research institute that looks at uh, climate and ecological security risks and the threats that they pose to U.S. national security, right? And that can be here at home, right, in the homeland, the direct risks of of climate hazards, but also the broader foreign policy. Uh, world as well, and and the threats that we see from abroad. So we really do three different things at at the institute. We do research and analysis, right? Like any good think tank, we dig into these issues uh, with experts and analyze risks, either based on geographies or sometimes types of risk. And and we publish a lot of reports. Uh, we actually just published two new reports um, that I'm really proud of that are interactive online uh, story maps uh, talking about Iran and Turkey. So, so we do a lot of, lot of research. But then we also do policy engagement and policy analysis, right? So we don't want to spend all our time admiring the problem. We also want to uh, propose solutions. So we engage with folks at the White House and in Congress. We also engage internationally with U.S. allies and partners um, to help them think through how do you move from analysis to action? How do we need to change how we do business to better manage these threats. And then the third thing we do at the center is what we call professional community development, because we think to really tackle the security risks of climate change, we need folks in the foreign and security policy community who have the tools and the skills to, to understand and address these issues. So we run a fellowship program for early to mid-career folks um, to help them learn about climate security. We also have one on ecological security. Uh, we run some different working groups um, to bring experts together on these issues. And we run, as you mentioned, the International Military Council on Climate and Security, which is military and security leaders from around the world coming together to share best practices uh, in addressing these risks. And again, we do this all from a security perspective. So we're, we're not an environmental organization, we're a security organization, right? And that's the lens that we, we bring to this work. Uh, we're also a member, or excuse me, we're a part of a larger organization called the Council on Strategic Risks, which looks at a range of, uh, frankly, existential risks to the United States, including nuclear issues, biological and chemical weapons issues, right? Uh, uh, biological threats like pandemics, uh, which we could <laughs> talk about forever since we just went through one. Um, but but looking at how we need to break down silos and and bring together different communities to tackle these risks. So that's a little bit about who we are. We've been around for a little over a decade um, and happy as we walk through the conversation today to talk more about some of the specific research we've done and some of the successes we've had. Okay. So as part of your career, I mentioned uh, in in my intro that you were an intelligence analyst uh, in the U.S. intelligence community, I believe at CIA. Is that right? Yep. Mm -hmm. uh, clearly, you led some important work with that uh, strategic futures group. Um, in, your, in your lengthy experience in the U.S. intelligence community, uh, maybe you can answer this question for us. How much does the U.S. intelligence community study the topic of climate change and the impacts of climate change today, as well as sort of assess future challenges climate change will levy on the United States and our allies and friends around the world? In other words, how important of a topic strategically is climate change as viewed by the U.S. intelligence community? 
Yeah, I mean, my quick answer to that question is, is they look at it quite a bit, but they could still be doing more. Uh, but let me let me unpack that a little bit and kind of where I think it helps to talk about a little bit where I came from on these issues. So I started my career in the intelligence community looking at risks of conflict and instability in the Middle East and East Africa. And I was leading teams of analysts who were supposed to warn the president right on on risks in in these areas. And as we did our work, environment and climate issues kept coming up again and again as drivers, right? You look like a place like Somalia, for example, and drought and famine, right? Playing a role in terrorist groups like Al-Shabaab being able to, to gain a foothold. Um, but we didn't always have the right tools in our tool belt or the right skills on the team to address these risks. And so that's part of why I started digging into this issue more and, and wanting and shifting my career away from just looking at, at the conflict and instability, but looking at how climate played a role uh, in, in driving it. And, and to be fair to the intelligence community, they've looked at, at these issues for, for many decades now. So it's not completely new to them. Um, and actually, way back in 1992, uh, when President Clinton was in office and Vice President Al Gore was in office, end of the Cold War, right, trying to figure out what are major threats and risks that we need to look at now around the world, one thing they did at CIA was set up a program called MEDEA. And what this program did was use uh, overhead imagery that had been gathered for decades during the Cold War and share it with scientists, the climate scientific community, so they could do some better comparisons of how the world was changing uh, because of climate change. They could look at you know, pictures from uh, the contemporary time period and then historic pictures of glaciers, right, of places like the Arctic and the Antarctic, and compare and, and see how things were changing. And that program was hugely successful and really laid a lot of the groundwork for understanding uh, what was happening with climate change. But that was an example of the intelligence community sharing information it had with scientists. Now we're in a place really where scientists are sharing information with the intelligence community so that it can make better assessments of risks posed by climate change. So in 2008, there was a national intelligence assessment done of the security risks posed by climate change. Talked a lot about how climate hazards would contribute to instability in countries around the world. Uh, there have been a series of reports from the National Intelligence Council over the years. Many of these are unclassified. You can actually go on the, the internet and, and find these reports. They're really fascinating to read, uh, especially ones that were written about 10 years ago, because you can compare to today and kind of where we see ourselves. But most recently, in 2021, so just a couple years ago, um, the Intel National Intelligence Council released a national intelligence estimate at the request of President Biden. Again, this is completely unclassified. You can find it online. And it's a very comprehensive document identifying a range of risks related to climate change, right? As uh, deserts uh, uh, increase, right? As, as rain decreases in parts of the world, right? Agricultural livelihoods, for example, will become harder in, in certain countries, which can lead to internal migration, Right, people leaving their rural homes to move into cities, which can cause instability in capitals in countries that the United States cares about. That's one risk that's talked about in, in these documents. And so the intelligence community is, is really, you know, their core duty at the end of the day is to warn 
policymakers of risks and to provide decision advantage, right? To help the United States make better decisions than its competitors or adversaries. And so bringing climate uh, dimensions into that analysis is, is really important. Uh, and the, the thing you mentioned that I did when I, uh, when I was still serving in government, the founding chair of the Climate Security Advisory Council was another effort by the intelligence community. What that council did was pair the intelligence community with the federal scientific community to talk about uh, climate change and climate threats. And so there's a lot we can leverage within the government itself. Um, all of that said, as I mentioned, I think there's more that can be done. What I worry about a little bit in the intelligence community is that a lot of this analysis of climate risks is often its own climate office, right? You've got the climate team, and then you've got all the regional teams, the teams that look at Russia, the teams that look at China, right? The teams that look at Latin America. And I think to really do this work right, you need to integrate those groups. You need to have the China team looking at how climate change is shaping uh, Chinese national interests, right? Chinese stability. Um, and I think getting over that hump where that, that integration really happens um, and you're breaking down the silos is, is the next step for the intelligence community. But uh, overall, I mean, they recognize that, that as the climate warms, as we have increased heat waves, increased rainstorms, more intense hurricanes, all of that can shape the landscape in which foreign and security policy happens and, and is really important for the U.S. to understand. I, I'm going to ask you a question. You may not know the answer. I definitely don't know the answer now. I've been out of the intel community for uh, 12 and a half years. But is there a national intelligence officer for climate uh, climate risks? Uh, does, has the director of national intelligence appointed anybody in that role? There is not a national intelligence officer. There is someone. There's a deputy, basically. So it's it's not a it's not a, the the highest level position. Okay. Um, yeah. If there was somebody like that, they could actually sequence those things, just as you discussed. Yeah, no, I think it would be. I, I think that would be an important role for someone, someone yeah. to play. Yep. So as I researched the Center for Climate and Security, I noted I noted the names of some of the people who serve on your board of advisors. It's sort of a, a list of a, a you know sort of a who's who list uh, in American national security circles. Some very famous uh, names on there. Uh, should that list tell us that many of these senior leaders, whether they're retired military officers, former U.S. government officials, secretaries, whatever. Uh, th that these people fully understand the national security imperative to, to better understand and prepare for the impacts of climate change? Uh, I mean, what else does it tell us, co considering their roles at, as advisors to the Center for Climate and Security? Yeah, I mean, I think it tells us a couple things. I think you're exactly right. It tells us that they understand um, the imperative to prepare for climate change because they saw it firsthand, many of them, right? One of our senior advisors on the board is uh, retired Admiral uh, Sam Locklear, oh, yeah. who was the head of US Indo-PACOM, right? And in the Indo-Pacific is where we see the US military having to respond to the most natural disasters, climate hazards anywhere in the world, right? The time they spend um, helping our allies and partners in that region uh, manage these risks, or frankly, in our own country, as we've seen in Hawaii this past summer, Right. Um, so he's he saw that in his work, in his day to day, and he saw how it affected his ability to do his core duty. Right. Which is to, to protect uh, the United States and fight and win wars. Um, so so they have, um, I think, a lot. They have strong voices there, given given their experience. 
Um, but the other reason that I think this advisory board matters so much is because we have seen, you know, on a topic that can often be polarizing in, in the United States, and there's a lot of politics around climate change, the national security implications of climate change is a place where we've actually seen bipartisan action and support over many years now. So when you look at Congress and the work they do on the National Defense Authorization Bill every year, under both Republican and Democratic Congresses, Republican and Democratic presidents, that bill has included provisions to advance uh, climate security within the Department of Defense and within the intelligence community. Bills inc included provisions around uh, ensuring resilience of US military installations and bases, right? Um, and that's something that our advisory board, our members can speak to and, and educate uh, policymakers on, on what it means when, you know, our military bases are offline because of wildfires and everyone has to evacuate or because sea level rise and storm surge has uh, destroyed things on the base. I mean, look at Tyndall Air Force Base down on the Gulf Coast of Florida, which a few years ago was just decimated by Hurricane Michael. Uh, not only did it cost billions of dollars, it interrupted training. It ended up uh, displacing troops who lived near the base, right, who had to evacuate and, and move to different bases for long periods of time. There have been studies done on mor morale for the troops that were there. I mean, it's been a real, a real challenge. And they're just now, you know, three years later, uh, finally finishing up rebuilding the base. Um, and so, again, our advisory board... Uh, the military, the retired military officers can speak to that. The retired diplomats as well on our board can speak to their engagement on the ground in other countries and how climate change affects the U.S. ability to work with other countries, right? Yeah. One of our key advantages in the United States compared to Russia or China is we have allies <laughs> around the world and partners, but many of those allies and partners are threatened by climate hazards. And if they can't, if they aren't resilient to those hazards, if they don't have a way of managing them, then when the U.S. needs them, right, when we want to call on them to help us with something, it's going to be much harder yeah, that's true. to do. And so anyway, that, yep. that's that's why our advisory board matters, because they have that real life experience, I think. Yeah, those, those, those naval uh, officers, those retired admirals that are on your board can probably speak to the fact that Norfolk Naval Base, the biggest naval base in the world, is already experiencing flooding uh, and the sea level rise has only been a little bit. <laughs> Wait till we get. Yeah, no, exactly. Exactly. Uh, so for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio AM 1080 and FM 95.1. We're broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Aaron Sikorsky, who serves as the director of the Center for Climate and Security and the International Military Council on Climate and Security. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, and you can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. So, Aaron, let's go ahead and dive a little more deeply into our topic for today. Uh, have we already been seeing places around the world where climate change is destabilizing governments because populations are being directly impacted by a changing climate? Yeah, I love this question because it, it recognizes that climate isn't some future hazard, right? It isn't something 10, 20, 30 years down the road to worry about. It's happening today. Yeah, not anymore. Um, we, we were predicting 20, 30 years ago that it would happen, and now it's happening. Right, exactly, exactly. If only, you know, in the intelligence community, we were always so good in our predictions. But this is one where we have a lot of confidence, right? There, You know, there are three places I would point you to that we've been tracking at the center um, where where we've seen 
uh, already instability. One is, I think, relatively well known uh, to folks is the the Syrian civil war, mm. right, in the Arab Spring, in in twenty. Uh, the early earlier uh, about a decade ago now, yep. but you saw that uh, a drought in Syria uh, prior to the civil war in that affected agricultural communities around the country, right? On top of poor agricultural governance, poor policies by the government, right? It wasn't climate or drought alone, but the drought amplified those risks. It caused populations to have to migrate, to leave their farms, to look for economic opportunity in the capital and in cities, and that influx of, of migrants, of folks uh, uh, usually from a different ethnic group than those in the capital, created further strains and tensions uh, within those cities, pressure on the government, right, then protests against the government for not supporting those communities, which then contributed to the crackdown by the Assad government. Um, again, wasn't climate change alone, but climate played a systemic risk in, in pushing that forward and amplifying risk, right? So that's one. Another example I'll give you is Somalia, where the three C's, COVID, climate, and conflict, over the past couple of years have led to a humanitarian crisis related to food security, Right. Um, you know, the rainy season doesn't exist the way it once did in the country. So local populations who rely on subsistence agriculture can't uh, rely on on sustaining themselves through that that pathway anymore. You also have a terrorist uh, group, Al-Shabaab, which has been active there for for many decades now. But when the population is strained by climate hazards and, and covid Right. That allows Al-Shabaab to step in when the government can't or it won't. It also reduces the opportunity cost of joining a group like Al-Shabaab. Right. If you can't make a living any other way, um, that 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 prospect looks a little better than it once did. And so that's created this cycle of, of instability and, and conflict in, in Somalia that has had real uh, threats and impacts to the United States and our interests in East Africa right, of strengthening Al-Shabaab, which has targeted Americans previously um, and, and, and caused real, real challenges there. The, the third place, and frankly, one I'm most concerned about uh, in the next few years here is, is Pakistan, mm, yeah. which yep. nuclear armed state, right, has been a state uh, that is home to terrorists and extremist groups. Uh, they had horrific floods last fall in 2022 which inundated uh, something like two thirds of the country, right? Um, and though the water has receded, the country is still feeling the lingering effects of that. Huge lingering health issues for the population, uh, lingering food insecurity challenges, economic challenges. The past year, the country's had a record inflation rate of 36.4%. The prime minister was ousted in April of last year with a vote of no confidence. And we've actually now this, uh, just this month, earlier this month, seen protests in the streets over high energy prices, um, challenges getting access to energy and electricity for populations. Um, so the flood, and you've had additional climate hazards. Actually, you've had lots of flooding in different parts of the country again this year, right? Which the military has been the, the major um, actor responding to those floods because they're one of the most resourced institutions in the country, obviously. 
Um, but that poses risks as well, that military in Pakistan does not have a, a stellar human rights record, right? Um, they've got exclusionary governance institutions. And so it's a really toxic mix. And, and climate is just adding, you know, more and more. And it, it, I think has the potential to be the straw that breaks the camel's back in terms of um, leading to greater instability in a country that that is really geopolitically important for the United States. So that's that's one I'm watching with a lot of concern. Yeah, I, I've been long concerned about Pakistan overall. Uh, back when mm -hmm. uh, Musharraf was uh, in, in in control as a military dictator, I think the guy survived mm -hmm. something like close to a hundred assassination attempts uh, by these <laughs> uh, jihadi groups. Uh, and you just imagine what happens if that country is taken over by jihadists, uh, and now you have a nuclear-armed nation run by jihadists. That's a terrifying uh, uh, possibility. Uh, so we have just about five minutes before we need to take our uh, mid-show commercial break. I, I, so keep, we need to keep this one tight. No one has a crystal ball, but the climate scientists have been able to interpret data and extrapolate likely outcomes based on climate models for, for decades now, really. Uh, we've known climate mm -hmm. change would happen, and climate modeling has grown more and more precise as more data has become available. Uh, the climate predictions that scientists have been making for a couple of decades are now aligning very, very closely uh, with the reality of what we're seeing around the world. Uh, since your center concentrates on assessing risk, what are people at the Center for Climate Security most concerned about with regard to likely impending climate impacts in, say, the next decade or the decade after that? Uh, what are we looking at for global climate by 2050 if nations around the world don't act today aggressively uh, to tackle this climate challenge that we all share? Yeah, so, so quickly, there are three things I'm most worried about. And the first is extreme heat. Which again, as you mentioned in the in the intro, we've already seen this summer. We had the warmest summer on record, but it's going to be the, probably the coolest summer in the rest of our lifetimes, right? So extreme heat means uh, affects economic production. It affects um, conflict risk. There's been academic studies that that uh, heat can contribute to conflict. It also means parts of the world are going to become unlivable for human populations right? Because you reach a certain temperature and you just can't operate outside. Your human body will shut down. And so that means migration. It means stress in, in cities, especially, that are already stressed. So I worry about that a lot. And I think we're going to see that not only in the global south, but also potentially in, in parts of the global north. Uh, combined with that, we're going to see stress on food systems. Food insecurity has been rising around the world for the past about five years now, which reverses decades of progress. Climate plays a big role in that, and stress on water as well, um, because communities are going to have less access to fresh water. Uh, there's going to be more internal conflicts, I think, um, over that those water sources, um, and countries are going to really, you know, we've already seen cities coming up dry in South Africa, we Turkey, um, Uruguay recently. Uh, and I think that's going to cause further stress. So those those are the things I'm worried about. And the fact that we're the investment that the world is making in adaptation is really uh, lags. So even if we cut all emissions tomorrow, right, magically, right. Right. we're still looking at warming because of the amount of the carbon in the atmosphere for the next decade or so, a couple decades. And so we have to adapt and we have to plan for that and build resilience. And the money to do that just isn't there. And yeah. so that worries me a lot. 
Uh, before we take that short break to recognize our sponsor, Aaron Skorsky, maybe you could tell us uh, three or four places around the world that have your greatest attention when it comes to this nexus of climate change and security. Just If you could just list them briefly, and we'll return to them after our commercial break. Sure. I would, I would look at the Arctic, I'd look at China, and I'd look at the Mediterranean Basin. Okay, we'll return to those in just a minute. We'll be right back, folks. National Security This Week is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. The Cybersecurity Summit brings together cyber experts from industry, academia, and all levels of government to explore challenges, solutions, and opportunities in the cyber arena. The three-day summit includes speakers, workshops, discussions about advancing a cyber career, and keynote addresses by top leaders from across the cyber community. Learn more at cybersecuritysummit.org. And we're back here on National Security This Week with Aaron Sikorsky, Director of the Center for Climate and Security, which as an organization is part of the Council on Strategic Risks. Now, Aaron, before our break, you mentioned the Arctic, China, and the Mediterranean Basin as being places of concern to you and at the Center for Climate and Security. So let's start with the Arctic. Uh, help us to understand the situation in the Arctic, what's at stake, and the ramifications for American national security interests. Sure. You know, so the Arctic has uh, been a place of geopolitical competition for, for years now, right, in a place of high concern for the United States, because obviously Russia has such a long border with the Arctic and so much infrastructure and military infrastructure in particular in the Arctic. Uh, but with climate change, what we're finding is that uh, the Arctic's actually warming four times faster than the rest of the planet. Uh, so the ice is melting, right? And the uh, extent of sea ice, which it, you know, it, it, every year the ice in the Arctic contracts and, and then regrows, right? So in the summer it contracts and gets smaller. In the winter it, it, it gets bigger again. But what we're finding is that it keeps getting smaller and smaller in the summer and not getting as big again in the winter to the point where scientists are, are predicting that there's, we're going to have ice-free summers in the Arctic in the not too distant future. Ice-free summers in the Arctic means a lot more uh, actors can, can uh, transit the Arctic, can try to access resources in the Arctic. There's a lot of oil and gas availability in the Arctic. There's also uh, a lot of critical minerals, right? And also if you can, travel with a cargo ship across the Arctic, you can potentially get places a lot faster, right, than, than some of our current routes. Yeah, the, the northern uh, so sea route, these... as I understand, if I could just interrupt momentarily. Yeah, no, please. Yeah, the, the northern sea route from the, uh, you know, coast on China, if you go across the top of the world through the northern sea route, you can get to ports in Europe and uh, the U.S. East Coast two weeks faster, uh, than the yep. other routes that exist today. That, that, that's billions and billions of dollars saved in transit costs and that just-in-time supply chain uh, that we've come to, uh, to know and love. Yeah, exactly. And it's still, I will say, it's still not easy, right? I mean, the Arctic is still very cold yeah. <laughs> and still uh, very dangerous yeah. to operate in. But what we see is countries like China in particular wanting to position themselves to take advantage. They see what's happening in the Arctic. If climate change wasn't happening, I don't think China would be interested in the Arctic, right? Um, but now China calls itself a, quote, near Arctic state and has been leveraging its relationship with Russia to try and pursue more footholds, right, in the Arctic so they can be the one to take advantage. 
which poses real security risks for the United States. It poses risks for the other Arctic nations, right? Um, one thing uh, we've looked at at the Center uh, for Climate and Security is just the risk of accidents yeah. in the Arctic. When you have more activity up there, right, you have more risks of, of accidents and you have more risks of miscalculation because countries like Russia and China use commercial cover for military activities, right? And so the risk that something spirals potentially out of control, I think, is growing, especially when you layer in the geopolitical conflict with Russia, given the invasion of Ukraine, right? Russia's basically been kicked out of the Arctic Council, which was a group that helped kind of manage the region peacefully. Um, we don't have a lot of interaction with, with Russia right now. Um, but I mean, the Arctic, what happens in the Arctic also doesn't stay in the Arctic vis-a-vis -vis climate change, right? The, the, the changes we're seeing there will have impacts for sea level rise around the world. They may have impacts for other weather patterns around the world. Um, and so there's just a lot of, a lot of risk there. Uh, and a lot of, and as the U.S. military thinks about trying to build a stronger presence in the Arctic, um, climate change makes that hard as well, because as the permafrost melts, right, in places like Alaska, putting in new infrastructure is really challenging. Um, so it's a it's a it's a tough tough place, and one that I think is is high on the list when you talk to anyone at the Department of Defense about where they're focused on climate security. The Arctic is is at the top. Yeah, I know. I know the uh, the Russians have gone back in and and uh, reopened old Cold War uh, bases in the high north on their Arctic uh, Ocean coast. Uh, all of that sits on top of permafrost. So as that melts, a lot of that money that they invested in those areas up there is going to go right down the drain. Uh, so let's continue on. Can, can I add? Uh, yeah, please, oh, please. I was, just, I was just going to add one one thing on that. No, I think it's really interesting with Russia. They have the most infrastructure of anyone built on our, on permafrost. And not only is it is it melting, but they also have huge wildfires yes. in, in their Arctic territory. And before Russia invaded the Ukraine, President Biden was giving a public um, uh, media appearance. And he actually mentioned, he said, look, Putin, the thing you should really be worried about is you have an Arctic that's melting and is never going to freeze again. That's your real security threat. Focus on that. Yeah. And I thought that was fascinating that that was in his public statement as, as something, because I think, you know, sometimes Russia is held up as benefiting from climate change, but actually it faces a lot of risks as well. Yeah, the taiga forest all across uh, the northern part of Russia has been burning uh, in recent yeah. years. Not quite as much as the Canadian wildfires, but uh, it's going to get bad as things dry out out there. Uh, so you mentioned China yep. as another uh, another country that uh, that has you deeply concerned. Let, let's talk about China, the implications of climate change on China. Yeah, you know, I mean, uh, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin has called uh, China the pacing threat for the United States. And I think to understand that threat and to position the United States to be able to manage that threat, understanding how climate change is affecting China itself is really important because it's affecting Chinese national security interests, right? It's affecting their positions on the international stage. And so we in the U.S. need to understand that um, and the, the vulnerabilities that China faces from climate change, frankly. Uh, so they face direct risks, right, to their military and critical infrastructure, their coastal shipyards, the islands they've built in the South China Sea, their railways and energy infrastructure, also on permafrost, and their highly populated southern river deltas. As we saw this summer, the flooding that they experienced um, and the internal stability challenges they face there over government decisions about where to send some of that flood water 
I think was really interesting. So, so they've got direct risks, then they've got these compounding risks, as I just alluded to, to internal political stability as climate change threatens food and water security across the country. I think food security in particular is a key issue for China. Um, the president, President Xi, has made a, a very uh, strong push for China to be self-sufficient in food, which is hard to do when you look at the amount of arable land they have compared to the population, right? Um, but they recognize that as a huge risk. And then they have external risks as well over shared resources as they try to uh, access some of that food, especially fishing stocks. Uh, China's uh, world ship, uh, fishing fleet is, is very uh, challenging to many other countries around the world. Uh, they've got shared river basins with neighbors that they're putting lots of dams on to try and access that water, right? So, so all of that, I think, is important and, and uh, means, as matters a lot to the United States because as China tries to manage those risks, it's going to potentially engage in more assertive or aggressive behavior on the world stage to try and gather food security resources. It's going to potentially crack down more on its internal population if they push back when the government doesn't respond well to climate hazards. Um, and we see China in its relationships with uh, other countries in the global south trying to leverage climate to its advantage, right, to build, build those partnerships. So there's a lot uh, of different things to worry about when it comes to China uh, in, in this space that, again, the U.S. needs to understand and think about, you know, way, areas in which it might be worth thinking about trying to cooperate with China, where we have shared interests in managing some of these risks, right? Um, but also places in which the U.S. and China are competing and how the U.S. can, can take advantage, frankly, of, of some of these challenges to strengthen our position in in the competition. Yeah, I, we actually did a show a couple of years ago on the Mekong River Basin, going all the way up mm. to where it starts in the in China, and ta and uh, discussing the fact that China was building all these dams on the tributary river systems up there. And uh, I guess it was even just last summer, uh, portions of the Mekong actually started to dry up uh, downstream. Yeah. Uh, which is dramatically impacting all of those, you know, fishing villages and whatnot that have existed for, I don't know, a thousand years along that along the the Mekong River. So there are some direct impacts there that China is facing and their neighbors to the south. Uh, now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I am under the impression that China is actually making the largest investment in clean energy infrastructure of any country in the world. At the same time that they're 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 dealing with all these other internal challenges from climate change. Is that, is that right? Yeah, no, it is right. And I mean, they're also building the most coal plants of anyone in the world. So they definitely <laughs> got all options on the table, right? But, but no, they, you know, it's really interesting when you read uh, uh, Chinese, the, the China's National Adaptation Plan, for example, they have some of the most ambitious infrastructure projects to try and manage uh, these risks of any country around the world. I think what we're seeing, though, and what we saw just this summer with Typhoon Doksuri when it hit and China's what they call their sponge cities, this uh, uh, approach to try and make cities, you know, more permeable and able to absorb rain, that they weren't up to the task of the level of the storm we saw. So even even a country that is doing, you know, significant forward planning is not planning enough um, or, or not, still underestimating uh, the risk there. So but but they're definitely 
you know, the U.S. doesn't have a national adaptation plan to climate change, which I think is a huge oversight and, and a national security risk, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. We had uh, uh, John Englander on the show uh, last fall, mm -hmm. and he, he recently released a book uh, called Moving to Higher Ground which is really the only option when the oceans are rising, right? Yeah. <laughs> you, you can't really yeah. hold that back. Uh, so the third area that you mentioned was the Mediterranean Basin. Why, why don't you tell us a little bit more about the concerns you have about the, the broader Mediterranean Basin? Sure. And, I mean, you can just look at this past summer to underscore some of those concerns. What recently, the flooding that we saw in Libya, you know, we often talk about climate hazards creating conflict and instability risks, but also when countries are already experiencing conflict and already experiencing instability, when they experience a climate hazard, it just is, is devastating, as we saw in, in Libya. And now we're seeing the aftermath of that as you have different factions fighting over uh, providing aid, right? But then on the other side of the Mediterranean, you look at Greece this summer, which had the largest wildfire ever in the EU. Um, but not just one wildfire, they also had flooding. Um, and the military there has been responding kind of nonstop this, this summer. Um, and the reason I say the whole basin then is because all of these countries, right, interact together. And I think my biggest concern in this region is, is the potential for climate migration uh, yeah. and the stress um, that that poses, right, with the North Africa being the departure point for many migrants, countries like Greece and Italy being the place, um, places where those migrants are, have been absorbed or Spain. Um, you know, when you look at what's been happening in Greece, that strains their ability, you know, when they're internally focused on that, their hazards happening to themselves, strains their ability to, to respond in a constructive way to migrants. We've seen the migration challenge um, drive uh, nationalist policies, closing borders, kind of reactionary responses. Uh, the other thing we've seen in the Mediterranean that is a concern I have kind of writ large about the climate crisis and security is the role that mis and disinformation is playing as well in driving potential instability. So a couple of years ago in Algeria, actually, we saw when they had wildfires there, uh, the government not being able to respond well to the wildfires uh, decided to blame uh, extremist groups and Israeli terrorists for, for the fires, right? Or in Italy, we've seen not the government, but we've seen on social media um, people blaming uh, Afghan immigrants for lighting fires, right? And that's the reason. And so I think that all, you know, when you're blaming already marginalized groups, already, you know, populations that, that maybe are already suffering, uh, you can create further divisions within countries, further instability. And I think the whole Mediterranean basin has the potential um, for, for having kind of systemic amplifying risks there. And, and looking at it as a whole, I think, is really important for understanding broader risk to Europe, uh, the EU and NATO as well, um, that, that could strain those institutions' uh, abilities to stay uh, united. And we need those institutions united in the face of threats like Russia, right? So, I mean, it's all, it's all connected, I think. And yeah. so it's, you know, sometimes when I talk to policymakers, they're like, well, is climate more of a threat than Russia or more of a threat than China? And I think that's the wrong way of looking at it. It's like, how is climate change going to strain our ability to respond to Russia, right? Yeah. How is it going to affect competition with China? So it's a shaping force, right? Yeah, everything is, uh, I mean, I think what I learned during my 20-plus my year career as an intelligence officer is that we live in a world that is a system of systems, 
And when yeah. one system inside that system of systems starts to get thrown out of whack, there are knock-on effects across the entire uh, complexity of the overall system. Absolutely. Uh, so for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Aaron Sikorsky, who serves as the director of the Center for Climate and Security. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, and you can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Uh, Aaron, I want to take you over to uh, to Micronesia, or more broadly, the mm-hmm. island nations across the South Pacific. Uh, some nations in that region are trying to use the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, to force the international community to tackle climate change before their nations are made uninhabitable by rising seas. I believe uh, Antigua uh, in in uh, the Caribbean is actually looking at, uh, at joining that cause as well. What kind of climate refugee situation looms for nations with low-lying coastal populations or, e- or even the island nations? Where do those human beings go when rising oceans take away their homes? Yeah, it's a critical question and one that I think the international community hasn't fully uh, come to grips with yet. But it's also a really timely question because actually just this week, the the White House hosted a, a, a summit with the Pacific Island nations. And one of the outcomes of that summit was President Biden reiterating that the U.S. considers sea level rise, right, should not cause any country to lose its statehood or its membership in the United Nations. And the U.S. is committed to working with those states and others on issues related to sea level rise and, and statehood. Because that's, that's a key question, right? What happens when your country goes away? Are you still a citizen of that country, even if you move somewhere else, right? Who has access to the territorial waters for fishing? Um, you know, lots of legal questions, frankly, to be unpacked here. And these nations, like you said, are using UNCLOS, the Convention on the Law of the Sea. They're trying to use other uh, legal mechanisms through the UN to try and get some some answers to these questions, uh, but the the urgency is is high. And the other thing is what the things that are decided uh, in terms of managing these risks on the islands will set the precedent then for other parts of the world, right? Because as we mentioned earlier, there's a high likelihood that other parts of the world that aren't on on coasts will eventually become unlivable as well because of rising temperatures, yeah. right? And so. Um, what we do with the Pacific Islands will will set that that standard. I think this is an area where the U.S. frankly should be putting significant attention and and time, not only because of of um, the the very real human security issues, but also because of the broader geopolitical competition in the region. Right? We want to be the ones that get this right and that these countries turn to to manage these risks. Um, but it's the migration question is such a sticky one, and I want—I give the Biden administration a lot of credit for putting climate change front and center, climate security front and center, but the migration one is where I think they're still lacking a lot of answers. Yeah, you mentioned uh, Admiral Sam Locklear uh, as an advisor on your on your board, former commander of the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command. Uh, he, he he would be one to reiterate the fact that we are in competition with the People's Republic of China uh, for in- influence across the entire South Pacific region. Uh, we sort of lost out a little bit with the Solomon Islands, which is a very important yep. uh, geo- geostrategic location. Uh, I think the Biden administration engaging, engaging with the rest of the Pacific Island nations across that whole region is really important, especially on these issues of climate change, because those those nations, a lot of the people in those nations, make their living from the ocean. 
and a healthy ocean yep. environment, a stable ocean environment is what they desperately need to continue their way of life. Uh, I'm going to throw a curveball at you, uh, if that's okay. <laughs> we had, we had mentioned sure. uh, you'd mentioned uh, the Mediterranean basin. I want to I want to bring it upstream a little bit on the Nile River. Uh, so the, oh, sure. the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam uh, that the Ethiopians built, uh, sort of up in the in the highlands. Uh, catches uh, a tremendous amount of water from the Blue Nile, which is the main feeder for the main Nile River. Uh, and obviously Sudan downstream, although they're in a bit of a civil war right now, but more importantly, Egypt, uh, all the way at the end of, uh, of the Nile, is very, very upset with, uh, with the government in Ethiopia for having built the, the, the GERD, as they call it, the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam. Uh, the two main con- uh, tributaries of the Nile River, the Blue Nile and the White Nile, come together there in Khartoum, uh, which has been you know, plunged into chaos with the civil war that's there. Uh, they, there have been talks recently between Ethiopia, Sudan, and Egypt over the GERD and the impact of the Nile as a whole. Now, as we consider the risks of climate change and the fact that the annual monsoons that hit the highlands in Ethiopia that feed the Blue Nile River— we may not be able to count on that rainfall going forward in the future. And everything uh-huh. that exists in Sudan and in Egypt exists because of the waters of the Nile River. Water is life in that region. Uh, what do you see as a risk perspective for those countries, Sudan and Egypt, uh, from a Nile River that maybe starts to dry up? And what kind of conflict pers- uh, potential is there between, say, Egypt and Ethiopia over the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam? Yeah, you know, and this is a question that I think the U.S. Uh, national security community has been watching closely for, for quite a while now. Um, you know, it's interesting, the academic literature, and you'll get this critique sometimes, the academic literature for a long time has focused that, that actually shared river basins lead to peace more often than they lead to conflict, because it means that countries negotiate and they come up with agreements and they bring scientific and technical expertise together. And, you know, you can point to a lot of examples. It's a good theory. What I worry <laughs> what, yeah, well, right. And, but, but what I worry about is that, that those agreements are based on a stationary understanding of the uh, availability of water, <laughs> right? <laughs> that climate, as you mentioned, is, is, throwing out the window, right? It's, it's changing significantly. And I worry with the GERD. I mean, I'm glad that the, the countries have been talking, but they've reached no agreements, right? And you have different interpretations of the amount of water available. You have different understandings of future water projections, right? And you don't agree on that, that um, the risk of, of misperception and misunderstanding is really high. I think it's, you know, a scenario I worry about is due to some kind of climate-driven hazard of, of drought or whatnot, you end up with a lot less water. But the Egypt uh, attributes that to bad behavior by Ethiopia, for example, right, and blames Ethiopia for it, as, and then that causes, uh, sparks some kind of conflict. Um, I, I think it's just, it's a very uncertain and unstable environment, and that uncertainty is is going to be extremely challenging um, to to manage. And when you, as you know, you've got all of these other dynamics going on in the region. Maybe you have a, a case where you have lots of domestic instability in Egypt, and the government is looking for a way to galvanize the population behind it, right, and point to an external enemy for something. You know, Ethiopia could be an easy uh, uh, scapegoat, right? And and again, so it's and with this crisis in Sudan. Um, 
it's just a lot of different layers together that, again, uh, climate will exacerbate going forward. So, Aaron Skorsky, we have about uh, eight minutes or so left in the show today. Uh, the Center for Climate Security studies these issues of climate change. They, they, you look at climate refugees or, or forced migration even due to, due to climate change and, and many other topics, risk factors associated with, with the changing climate. What haven't I asked you today that we really must include in our discussions this morning if we're going to be comprehensive? Sure. I mean, I, I guess the thing I haven't really talked about, we've talked a lot about the risks of climate hazards themselves, but another piece of this that we look at is what are some of the risks around the responses to climate change, right? And here I'm talking about as we move through the energy transition, right, as countries that have been able to have strong economies <laughs> due to oil and gas, for example, right, there's risks of instability there. There's risks around access to critical minerals that we need for batteries, right? But the mining process for reaching those minerals can be really destructive to ecology, and environment, um, the risk of instability and competition there. I worry a lot about something called geoengineering, right? The ability, something often called solar radiation management to reflect sunlight to cool the planet um, is seen as a techno-optimist solution often to, to managing climate risk, which has a whole bunch of, of different uh, worries I have about escalation dynamics and, and misperception and deterrence. Um, so all of these things also carry geopolitical risk. And so it doesn't mean we shouldn't move through the energy transition, but it means we, means we need to be aware of these risks and prepare for them and think about them ahead of time. Um, you know, the International Energy Association just yesterday came out with a new report on a pathway to 1.5. And in many ways, it's very positive, right? It, it talks about how it actually will save the world $12 billion. It will... Um, create more jobs and will be lost if we move to solar and, and wind and nuclear and all of these things. But that's a big upset to the system and how the system works. And we have to do it very rapidly. And rapid change is not something that the international system is good at absorbing and managing, right? Many countries are not good at absorbing and managing that. So uh, there's there's a lot of, of, of risk there that needs to be understood and, and unpacked. Um, and I think that's as important, frankly, as, as understanding the risks of, of climate hazards themselves. Yeah, I, you, so before we jumped on the show, I found out that you were actually from Wisconsin. Uh, and so you're, I'm sure, very aware of the debates that have been taking place about copper nickel mining in northern Minnesota up near the Boundary Waters and in the Lake Superior watershed. Uh, so this is, I mean, for Minnesota, this, this issue of how do we transition over to a clean energy economy on a global scale, it does require all of these uh, critical materials, some of which are available mm -hmm. here in northern Minnesota, but it does put not only the Boundary Waters, but even Lake Superior at risk uh, from failed right. uh, containment of uh, the mining uh, effluents. So, so Aaron Skorsky, as we come to the end of our show, I always try to give my guests uh, the final word. We've covered many, many topics today, but we just don't have the time, even in an hour-long show, to hit everything. What final thoughts would you like to leave with our listeners before we conclude our discussions this morning? The floor is yours. <laughs> So look, I mean, it can be a pretty depressing conversation sometimes talking about all of these risks and challenges. So I also want to highlight that I think there are opportunities as well, that bringing a climate lens to foreign and security policy gives the United States opportunities to advance, uh, to strengthen relationships with allies and partners, 
to find new solutions uh, for working with countries that maybe we've traditionally had some tensions with, that addressing climate risks can build resilience in other countries to other hazards, right? Um, so I think all of that is the investment in addressing and understanding climate risk pays dividends beyond just the climate hazards themselves. And so doing so um, should be seen as, as an opportunity to advance U.S. national interest, to advance our own security here at home, um, and make our, our communities and our and our country safer. So I'll, I'll leave you with that. <laughs> I, I like that. I, I think it's always better to think through the challenges and the opportunities and to demonstrate initiative rather than to be there and just react to everything that's happening. Uh, that's a that's a yep. good that's a great point. Aaron Skorsky, director of the Center for Climate and Security. Thank you for joining us today on National Security This Week. A any resources you might recommend to our listeners to better understand this topic of uh, the nexus of climate change and national security? Maybe you can give us the website for the Center for Climate and Security and maybe some other resources. Sure. I would, yeah, direct you to climate security, climateandsecurity.org, which is our website. And we have a Climate Security 101 list up there. It's got all the documents I talked about from the intelligence community, from uh, the Department of Defense. Um, so encourage you to check, check all of that out. Um, and the broader Council on Strategic Risks website as well, councilonstrategicrisks.org, um, has these interactive story maps that I talked about. So uh, not just long reports to read, but actually pictures and maps to look at, um, which I think help tell the story well, too. I'm actually looking at one of those maps right now on the Council on Strategic Risks dot org website, the one about military responses to climate hazards oh, tracker. Mm -hmm. uh, the number of places mm -hmm. and types of uh, uh, of ha uh, climate driven uh, disasters, hazards that have taken places, and and the places where military forces have had to respond because it's the only uh, entity with the, with the kind of bandwidth to handle the scale of the, uh, of the damage. Uh, that's a fascinating, uh, website, uh, an interesting tracker. Yeah, thanks. Uh, one last question uh, before we go, what courses are you teaching this fall at George Mason university? <laughs> I'm teaching a class, uh, actually tonight as uh, my Wednesday nights on climate change and national security and kind of walk through in detail, all of the things we talked about here. So I, I love it. It's, it keeps me on my toes for sure. And I appreciate the students interest and passion, frankly, on the topic. Nothing forces you to have to learn a topic uh, than having to teach it to somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So Aaron Skorsky, thank you so much for spending time with us this morning here on National Security This Week. Thanks for having me, John. And that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. I look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio. Have a great finish to your week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns with host John Olson. It's brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check their website, cybersecuritysummit.org, for a listing of their upcoming webinar series.